This is the time in our gathering when we receive our weekly collection. So if uh, you have scripture passages on the back, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 5. And my text today is just one verse, one remarkable verse. On the heels, you recall, of Jesus coming to the lame man, lame for 38 years, he has not walked a step, and Jesus miraculously heals him. And now we read, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So far the reading of God's word. Did Jesus ever write a book? Not that we know of. And yet, works, the greatest works of literature have focused on his life and his teachings and what he has done in this world. Did Jesus ever write a song? Not that we know of. And yet, the magnificent works of Johann Sebastian Bach and Handel and Mozart, inspired through the centuries to write the exquisite and gorgeous songs that cause our hearts, as Michael said earlier, to stretch up to God. Did Jesus ever um, paint a painting? Not that we know of. And yet the works of Michelangelo and da Vinci and others have, have um, been gorgeous expressions, the the, the fathers down in the museums that we see their paintings so grip us. I still remember being at the Frick Museum down in Manhattan. And I saw the portrait of Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus taking the body of Jesus down from the cross. And the man standing next to me said, what's that all about? He had never heard. And a crowd gathered as I explained to them this moment of Christ dying for sinners, captured so powerfully with light and brush stroke on the canvas. Oxford theologian Alistair McGrath said, although Jesus taught for only three years, his influence looms larger than the combined influence of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, who taught for a combined 140 years. And the entire Western world divides history into B.C., before Christ, and A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. And one of the great ironies, Alistair McGrath points out, is even those people who find great vehemence against Jesus Christ, who rail against him, they are still, in their life and death, dated according to Jesus. 
Jesus has been the inspiration for incredible social renewal as, as slaves have been set free, as women have been given equality in many corners of the earth, as children born and unborn have been protected and nurtured and cared for. People have worshipped him and people have used him as the excuse for terrible evil. They've worshipped him, they've hated him, some have died for their devotion to Jesus, and others have killed in his name. And when you think about cursing, is there any other name more commonly used to express frustration or cursing in the world than the name of Jesus? Just across the sound over in in. New Haven and Yale, the great historian Yaroslav Pelikan, he says this, Jesus of Nazareth has been the most dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. Then he says, if it were possible with some sort of magnet to pull out of history every scrap of reference or influence of Jesus Christ to just to just remove from history any memory or influence of Jesus, he says, what would be left? Not much. Jesus makes a splash, doesn't he? And we're in this series in the Bible reading through two chapters of John's Gospel, chapter 5 and chapter 6, and our theme week after week is simply this, that Jesus makes people mad and Jesus makes people glad. And which are you? Our text today says he has done something so upsetting that the religious leaders of his day wanted to kill him. They are so filled with fury and scorn. And yet that very thing that makes them mad makes us glad. Now, you'll recall, point number one, from our text, the Jews were seeking to put him to death. In their minds, Jesus deserved to die for his words and his claims. For there is in their mind's eye, they understand, there is a death sentence for his crime of blasphemy. Now, I've got to reiterate something. I know Martin mentioned it last week, but we need to say, because of the black eye of anti-Semitism on the church, that when the Bible here speaks about the Jews, who's he talking about? He's not talking about ethnic Jewish people. This is the word for the religious leaders of the day who had their headquarters in Jerusalem, okay? And 70 times when he refers to the Jews, he's just merely talking about those religious leaders. And we need to say that so that we do not fall into the trap of so many haters in this world who, who just buy into anti-Semitism and use the New Testament as an excuse for it. We must never do that, okay? But why did these uh, leaders, religious leaders, want to kill him? Were they just bloodthirsty and ignorant men? Were they just mean? Well... I do think in some ways they probably were ignorant and mean. But it's more complicated than that. Why? Our clue comes from the text and the phrase, 
He was making himself equal with God. Did you hear that in the text? He was making himself equal with God. And they considered this blasphemy. And blasphemy, if you know your Bible, is very serious. For some of you, this is a new idea. It might even be a new word. Blasphemy. Comes from two Greek words, blapto and uh, phimos. Blapto means to injure, and phimos means to speak. And so blasphemy is injurious or hurtful speech. Hurtful speech. And in the Bible, it is that intentional injury of the name and reputation of God. Okay? Do you hear that? And it is a big deal. And for these Pharisees who are distressed by Jesus, their minds go back to the Torah. It goes back to Leviticus 24, verse 16. This may not be a, one of the verses that you've memorized in the Bible. Listen to this. You'll see it on the back of your sermon outline. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The entire, all the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Wow. Where does this come from? It comes from the Ten Commandments. Do you know the Ten Commandments? Do you know the third of the Ten Commandments? Exodus 20, verse 7. It says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. It was a sin so vile that the Mosaic law, yes, it required the death penalty for those who blaspheme the name of God. Now, it's complicated. You need to remember, back in the Old Covenant, Israel was established by God as a theocracy. And that is to say that Israel lived in the land of Israel with the very presence of God in their midst. And God's presence, the Shekinah glory that was in the tabernacle, made the land holy. The land was holy. It was a theocracy where the church and the state were together one, and the, the people of God bore the sword in the execution of justice on God's behalf. It's not like that today. The church is separate from the state. The church does not bear the sword in the new covenant, does not punish iniquity in, in, in those sort of wrathful ways. But Israel, Israel lived in that time there in the garden. Or there in Israel, the land flowing with milk and honey. And what does that remind you of? It's back to the Garden of Eden. Yeah. Israel was, here's the way the theologians put it, listen carefully, it was a republication of the Garden of Eden where God was in their midst and made the land holy and the people were to be holy. And when they obeyed Him, the stipulations of the covenant, it brings blessing upon them. But when they disobey, the wrath of God is exercised and the evil is expunged from the land. So if you misuse God's name, who is physically present among you, 
What do you do? You misrepresent him. When you diminish God, you misrepresent him. You rob him of the glory he deserves. Who is this one? We sang alleluia to the one who, 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 who with one whisper, and galaxies explode into existence. He's the creator of all things. And we diminish the Redeemer, the one, as Pharaoh thundered down upon the Israelites to destroy them. And Moses says, sit down, Israel, and behold the salvation of your God. And God parts the sea, and his people are saved, and his enemies are destroyed. This is the God of creation and redemption, and you dare to defile his name? That's blasphemy. How, how do you understand the severity of this punishment? You're put to death. Well, I don't know if I can illustrate this very well, but the severity of the penalty depends upon the dignity of the victim of the crime. And, 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 and I don't know, if you come across a child and he's pulling apart a worm, you might say to the child, you know, that is one of God's creation, and it's not good to take sadistic delight in uh, pulling apart a worm. But suppose eight years later, the kid's pulling apart a dog or a cat. All of a sudden, what happens? Our sensibilities are, are stirred more deeply. Why? This is a sentient creature. That it is a creature somehow more marvelously made than a worm. And we know that we should treat this creature uh, with, with a sense of respect. And then we warn the child, this is wrong. And then we say, and if the day should come when you would be tempted to pull apart a human being, that human being is made in the image of God. And the severity of that is called murder. You see, there may be some gradations. How, how do I explain this? Gentlemen, on your wedding day, your bride approaches. And she is resplendent with beauty. As you imagine her, she comes to you. And her father places her hand in yours. And everyone is smiling except one guy, and he stands up, and he begins to insult your wife and shout out curses against her. And all the foulest words you can imagine come out of his mouth there in the church building. What happens? The best man races down the aisle. The attendants race down the aisle. The guy's in a headlock, and he's carried off to the police station. Maybe. Or worse. You see, it's one thing to talk trash when you're playing an opponent in basketball. That might be impolite. But you insult my wife on our wedding day in the church. And you know there is no place for this. And so it was in Israel as God, the creator king, the redeemer king, dwells in the midst of his people. 
They cannot, they must not, they will not tolerate blasphemy, injurious speech against God. And they remember Leviticus 24, and here is this rabbi making himself equal with God. Now, point number two. With this background, you need to understand how shocking Jesus was in his day. I listened to Pastor Martin's excellent sermon online. You can listen to any of our sermons online. And, and they were upset about two things. Martin explained last week that they were upset because Jesus took and exposed their misunderstanding of the law. As the Lord of the Sabbath, he healed on the Sabbath and told that man to take his mat on the Sabbath. And this infuriated the regulations of the minds of the Pharisees. That was very helpful. But on top of this, they are upset because he makes himself equal with God and they accuse him of this. Get a sense of what's going through their mind. Who is he? This pretender. How can he say these things? Think about it. Jesus frequently talked about his unique otherworldly origin. He says, like in John uh, 8, 23, he says, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. What do they make of this? Yeah, but that's chapter 8. We're only in chapter 5. What, where does Jesus already made this uh, audacious claim? And, you know, a couple weeks ago, I was talking about the deity of Christ, but I skipped over John chapter 2, one of the most interesting passages in John 2 when Jesus, do you remember, he cleanses the temple from all its corrupt uh, practices. Remember, they're selling doves and they're selling all kinds of critters and they're making a great profit off of the poor. And, um, and they, they, they look at him and they say to him, Jesus... Jesus comes and he drives them out. And um, Jesus told those who sold the pigeons, listen to this, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And the religious leaders, they, they begin to investigate, why do you say this? This is John 2, uh, 18 and 19. And verse 19, Jesus says, talks about my father's house. Do not make my father's house a place of trade. That was annoying for them. And then he says in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And verse 21 interprets it. He was speaking of his body. And what Jesus was saying, and they knew it, is that the Old Testament temple will no longer be the location for worship. I will be. I will be the location for the worship of the people of God. This is distressing to the Pharisees who loved the temple and probably the cash that came through the selling of the doves. Jesus, what did he say? Truly, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, what did he say next? I am the tetragrammatron, the, the voice of God speaking to Moses, identifying himself. 
Moses says, who should I tell them sent me? I am. Drives them crazy. I and the Father are one. Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And the most maddening thing of all, you recall, is that Jesus claims to forgive sins. Not, not just he forgives you when you sin against him. Down in Mark chapter 2, they say, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus announces that he doesn't just forgive your sins against him. He says he forgives your sins against him. So this is blasphemy, and it makes them mad. Who is this man? Why does he speak like this? It makes people mad. I, I, I've taken a long time here, but it makes people mad. Who does it make mad? It makes atheists mad. It makes Muslims mad. It makes our Orthodox Jewish friends mad. It makes Buddhists mad. It makes all sorts of secularists, it makes them mad. Oh, sure, they will acknowledge that Jesus is a nice guy. But don't try to tell me I need my sins forgiven by the Son of God, that he is the Son of God. That is intolerable, and he is disturbing. And now in the greatest irony, the greatest irony, Jesus is going to take the holy law of God. I'm sorry. The Pharisees are going to take the holy law of God and use it to injure and then murder the holy son of God. How strange, how terrible this is. People resist. People resist. Even, not just the, the Unitarians and the atheists, and, but, but even in the church. In the church, people resist. Be careful, church. We need to be careful. For corruption comes into the church, and we begin to say, you know, we've got to be tolerant, right? Dietrich. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he spoke about cheap grace. He spoke about an idea of grace that has sucked Christ out of the church. Cheap grace, it's grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. And it can happen in the church a scary thought, isn't it? North Shore Community Church. Our text says these religious leaders were seeking to kill him. And it says they plotted against him. They sought to trap him. Why? Because of his blasphemy. When they wanted to kill him at the end of the Gospel of John, and Pontius Pilate says, you know what? I find no, nothing wrong with this man. Remember that? They say, we have a law 
Pontius Pilate, he didn't understand the Jews. He said, we have a law in our religion. He made himself equal with God, and so he must die. And they plotted and they schemed, and somehow, though he was innocent, they, they came against him and put him to death. And they do succeed. And the, the most terrible thing of all is that we are a party to it. We, in our own rebellion, our own sins, nailed Jesus to the cross. Our rebellion, my lust for autonomy, to be my own boss, to be my own Lord, to direct my own footsteps, that's what my flesh craves more than anything. But Jesus claims to be the Lord and the God over my life. I nailed him to the cross. And so I injured the Son of God. I blasphemed his name. Does he make you mad? We don't want cheap grace. We don't want cafeteria Christianity. Do you know what that is? Cafeteria Christianity? It is a deadly, insidious poison in the church where people become consumers and say, well, I'll take this and I'll take that and I'll take this, but, but I don't want... I don't want the whole counsel of God. I don't want the Son of God, God the Son, as my Lord and Savior. People will, they'll tolerate Jesus for a while until you encourage them to bow the knee. And then they begin to scoff and to resist. Outside the church, even sometimes inside the church. But, point number three, there's another response to his claim that he is equal with God. And what is that? It is to conclude that he made these claims because it's true. And if you believe that, it makes you glad. It's to embrace the wonder and the beauty of God's self-expression, self-revelation in Jesus Christ. Have you done that? I, 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 this is a question to you. Sometimes people say, Pastor John, it feels like you're preaching just to me. Well, right now I am. Right now I'm preaching just to you. Okay? Have you come to the place in your life where you have embraced the Son of God who gave his life and lived the life you should have lived and died the death you deserve to die. You say, I think so. Some of you say yes. Some of you say, I, I think so. Some of you say, not yet. Okay. And today is a great day. Today is a great day, especially for those of us who say, I think so. Today is a great day for you to say, yes, I know so. Why would you do that? The epistles tell us. The, the epistles explain the gospels, you know. And Bernie read earlier, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. God has spoken to us by his Son, through whom he also made the universe. His Son is the representation of his being. God has made himself known to you in Jesus Christ. And after he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. 
Oh, my friend, I'm speaking to you now. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And since he is fully God and fully man, he is uniquely qualified to bring us into a relationship with God. Do you believe that today? He comes near to you. You say, Pastor John, you don't know the blasphemy that I have committed. Can my blasphemy be forgiven? Well, I have good news for you. Anybody know the Apostle Paul? He used to be called Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee and a scholar and a persecutor of the church. And in 1 Timothy 1.13, he gives his own testimony and he says, though formerly I was a blasphemer. Paul, the apostle, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent of Christ. But I received mercy. Is there mercy for you? Oh yes, my friend, there's mercy for you. If you embrace and surrender and bow the knee to Jesus Christ today, complete forgiveness, complete forgiveness is offered by the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And since he's God, what is my encouragement to you? It is to worship him, worship him. You know, he received worship. That drove them crazy. Drove them nuts. But when Jesus uh, walked on water and he was in the boat, it says they worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. And after his resurrection from the dead, as he comes out of the tomb, they came, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Blasphemy is still a serious sin. Suppose one of our Sunday school teachers started to teach that God was an alien who came from, who, who, who's from a different galaxy. What would we do? It would not be fitting for us to stone him to death. But what would we do? Would you just say, well, you know, people have their own opinions. The church needs to be tolerant. Every man has his own ideas. What would you say? No, the elders of our church would love on this person. Then we would instruct him from God's word. But if he persisted in either cursing God or persisted in diminishing God's character, what would we do? We'd rebuke him. We'd correct him. We'd suspend him from taking the Lord's Supper. And if he refused us in stubbornness of his soul, what would we do? We would discipline him and cut him off from the church. You have to be, you, you can't say those things in the church. Outside the church, say what you want and bear the consequence, but that's what we would do. Does that sound unkind? Or is that the righteous response? And then what would we do? We would preach the love of Jesus 
to that person. The Bible says it's to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. We would preach the gospel. We would love on them and we would tell them of the Savior. And we would encourage them to surrender to him and listen to his word and to worship him. Oh, my friend, I want us to take some time now. I don't want to rush right now. I want us to take some time and just humble ourselves and ask each of you in your own heart. I'm going to ask, invite us all to bow our heads and to ask myself. Would you ask yourself, am I mad at Jesus or am I glad? Have you been a blasphemer? Ask him to show you in your heart. This is a spiritual opportunity for you. Have you joined in the worship of this most famous one. You're welcome to join in worship with him. Have you been interested in a church that teaches cheap grace? That is, religion without the cross, without repentance, without surrender. without discipleship. Oh, Lord. Have you been silent when friends or family members blaspheme your Jesus? God calling you to speak up in love and respect but in strength to say you know you're talking about my Jesus <coughs> mothers and fathers are you allowing your children to take the name of the Lord in vain? Or are you allowing your children to say, Jesus is just one of many religious figures, and in the cafeteria of religion, I can pick and choose? Moms and dads. How is the Lord speaking to you about the discipleship of your children? After he rose from the dead, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. 
And they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. What would you have done? What would you have done? Pray with me in the quietness of your own heart. Oh Lord, I want to be a worshiper of you. Lord Jesus, reveal to my heart how great and glorious you are. How rich is your love. How great is your name. Lord Jesus, I do not accuse you of blasphemy. I have been guilty in careless misuse of your name. And I have injured you and others. Please, by your blood shed on the cross, forgive me. worship you and give you the glory. Be the center of my life. I don't even fully understand what I'm asking, but I ask you to do it. And I dare to make this prayer in your matchless name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I invite the musicians if they would come up. We're going to continue this prayer and sing a song that um, Michael taught us a couple months ago, that our Lord is the famous one. Michael, we'll let you start it off, and then you signal to us when we should come in. Let's stand together and worship him.